0: If Jesus could say something to the church today, what do you think he would say? If he ordered an audit of his people, what would the results expose about us? Would he commend us? Would he approve of what he found? What would he say is our greatest challenge? Maybe he'd say it's our tendency to pursue convenience and comfort. Maybe it's the scandal of sexual immorality. Maybe it's our culture's growing hostility toward the church. Maybe it's the impulse to redefine the hard edges of the gospel in order to make our message more appealing to a post-Christian world. Maybe it's the opposite, that we've become so concerned with doctrinal precision that we've lost the capacity for love. Maybe it's that some churches are all smoke and mirrors, lacking spiritual vitality, despite an impressive buffet of programs and activities. Perhaps it's that we are a shrinking minority barely holding on in a world that despises us. The point is, Jesus, he probably wouldn't just have one thing to say to the church today. Because every church comes with its own particular set of challenges. Such was true of the seven churches dispersed throughout the province of Asia Minor in the first century, to whom the letter of Revelation was written. Laodicea was an affluent community, and Christians there were tempted to rely on financial resources for peace and comfort. Churches in in Pergamum and Thyatira were stained by the scandal of, of sexual immorality, and they failed to draw lines that were needed to define the essentials of the gospel. The church of Smyrna was stigmatized by outsiders and slandered by the community. The church in Sardis looked like it was thriving, but it was actually dead inside. The Philadelphian church was a tiny minority struggling to endure in a community that hated them. And the church that we'll look at today, the Ephesians, well, they were full of experts in theology and doctrine for which Jesus praised them. But they were a people who'd forgotten what it meant to love. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. This morning, as Stephen just noted in the pastoral prayer, we start a new series on Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Now, Revelation is one big letter addressed to seven different specific churches— Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And the whole letter was was to be circulated throughout these churches. But in chapters 2 and 3, John addresses each church individually. And we see a, a kind of smaller subset of handcrafted letters written by King Jesus himself to each of the churches. You know how when you, uh, you take a picture on your phone and you, you kind of zoom in with your two fingers there and and the picture gets bigger, and you can kind of zoom in on somebody, the face that somebody's making in the background. That's kind of what, kind of like what's happening in chapters two and three with these letters from Jesus. But the messages that Jesus sends to these churches, they're not self-contained within Revelation. They're a prologue to, to the rest of the book, introducing images and themes and ideas and promises that that are repeated, expanded, and, and recapitulated each time we turn the page in the book. Now, as complex as reading Revelation can be, it, is a, it has a message for us that is refreshingly simple and relevant for us today. Because the, the book, by and large, is, is basically about how King Jesus equips his people, the church. To walk faithfully amid a, a world that's in political, cultural, economic, and spiritual disarray. Sounds awfully f- familiar, doesn't it? The letter was, was written by the Apostle John while he was exiled on the island of Patmos, uh, which was about 25 miles away from Ephesus, the, the nearest city. In many ways, John is a microcosm of these seven churches. He's a partner with them in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 1, we read of John's initial vision. One like a son of man appears, clothed with a long white robe and a golden sash around his chest. His hair is white like snow, and staring into his face is like staring directly into the sun. And his voice deafens with the roar of a thousand Niagara Falls. From his mouth came not a a tongue, but a sharp two-edged sword. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And as this king-like figure approached John, he moved among seven golden lampstands. And what's perhaps most astonishing about the whole scene isn't isn't the way this one looks or appears to John, but what he does. He speaks. We hear his voice. And it becomes clear that the one standing before John is the resurrected King Jesus, robed in all of his dreadful majesty. And then Jesus does something perhaps even more astonishing. He speaks not only to John, but to seven real, actual, particular, local churches with real, actual, particular people who make them up. People just like you and me. Real Christians with real problems in real time in a very real world and he starts with Ephesus. So listen to the words he says to the church in Ephesus beginning in chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, before we can rightly understand Jesus' amazing words here, we have to stop and look at where Jesus is when he speaks these words. So look back down at verse 1 with me. We've got to get what's going on here before we can go on. What's Jesus doing? He's holding seven stars in his right hand, and he's walking among seven golden lampstands. Okay, okay, Trog, awesome. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, one of the keys to understanding Revelation is seeing how John picks up different images or symbols and uses them to represent something else. And and Jesus is actually going to take the time to explain to John and to us what the seven stars and the seven lampstands represent. So look back in chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, this is Jesus talking And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there's your answer. Okay, but before we can see what's happening here, we've got to understand a couple more things. First, the number seven throughout Revelation is an extremely significant number. It is a symbol itself. And it symbolizes completeness throughout the whole book. Anytime we see that number in the book of Revelation, we're supposed to immediately think completeness. So when we see Jesus hold the seven stars, or walk among the seven lampstands, or, or speak to seven churches, we're not to understand that Jesus is speaking only to these seven particular churches. No, not at all. He's speaking to those seven specific churches as representative of all churches, of the whole and complete church of God across all time and all all place and all space. In other words, he is speaking to all the local churches everywhere, to the church in Ephesus and to University Baptist Church right here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Second thing, the stars or the seven angels of the churches. What's going on there? What exactly is the angel of the church of Ephesus? Well, there are lots of guesses. And to be honest with you, I don't really know what the right answer is. But my best guess is that, is that these angels are heavenly beings. They're actual angels who represent these seven individual churches before God's throne. And who, who've taken on some kind of responsibility for the welfare of the church. And I think that that Jesus addresses this letter to the angel of the church to remind the Ephesians that they were an earthly outpost of God's heavenly kingdom. But more important than that, more important than the seven angels, is that the seven churches are represented as golden lampstands. That's massively important. Huge, huge. You see this in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 20, and, and again in 2.1. You know, in, in the book of Revelation, the lampstand is representative of the church. It's the church. Now, why is that so important? Well, it's because God had always intended for his people to be a light for the world. It's, it's what Trey read, read for us from in The Call to Worship. He'd always intended his people to kind of glow in the dark, so to speak. So the churches are are represented here by their main function, to bear witness to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's why we exist. And then look at where Jesus is. Look at where he is in the midst of all this. This is astonishing. The resurrected king is walking among the lampstands. He's walking among the lampstands. He's in the midst of the people. This is how intimately Jesus himself is tied to the local church. He's with us. His spirit is moving among us. This is a picture of his care, his pastoral care for the preservation and the purity of his people. So these these seven letters, this letter to Ephesus, this is a love letter from the king to his bride, to his bride in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, and so forth. And they're his words of love to us here in Fayetteville. All of this imagery, of course, it's, it's reinforcing his authority, his supremacy as the head of his church. So even before we get into the the actual body of the letter, we have to understand how massively important everything that's happening in verse 1 really is. Jesus walking among his churches like this, coming to assess their body of work, it'd be something like the queen of England, the supreme head of the church of England, walking through the back door of of some small little English countryside Anglican church, curtsying as she comes in and joining the congregation for a service. You know, if that happened, you would take notice. You'd straighten up. You'd sing a little louder. You'd take copious notes to the sermon, wouldn't you? Now, that pales That pales eternally and cosmically in comparison to what's happening right here. Here, real royalty walks through the door. The supreme head of the church enters the building. But King Jesus doesn't just slip through the back door, he doesn't just silently observe. He walks up to the pulpit and speaks. He's come to assess. He's got things to praise, problems to correct, promises to make. Jesus has something to say. And that's the basic structure of the letter. In verses two to three and and verse six, Jesus commends the Ephesians for what they're doing well. They're a discerning church. Loving good and hating evil. But in verses 4 to 5, Jesus brings a charge of disapproval against them. They're a loveless church. And Then he closes the letter in verse 7 with a promise that only the resurrected king could fulfill. So I think the main idea of this passage is this. The main idea is this. The church that shines Christ... The church that shines Christ, endures for Christ, loves in Christ, and will feast with Christ. The church that shines Christ, endures for Christ, loves in Christ, and will feast with Christ. And those are going to be our basic three points this morning. We're going to be thinking about a church that faithfully bears witness to Jesus. And they do that by enduring for Christ, loving in Christ, and then one day they will feast with Christ. So, point number one, endures for Christ. You know, in verses two and three, Jesus' evaluation, it, it begins with a glowing report of the church. The first two words there in verse two uh, and in verse three, I know. They point to how intimately aware Jesus is of the Ephesians, which again is going to just reinforce his supremacy and his authority over the church, which from the get-go, right out of the gate, should sober us. We are not finally the ones who evaluate Jesus' work. He is evaluating ours. We're under his eye, and he knows exactly what kind of shape we are in. And in Ephesus, he finds nine things to commend them for. Their works, their deeds, their patient endurance, their refusal to tolerate evil, their testing of false teachers, their final assessment of those false teachers, their suffering for Christ's name, their perseverance, and their hatred of the ways of the Nicolaitans, which comes later in verse 6. If you didn't catch all those nine, they're in your Bible. In all these ways, the the Ephesians are testifying to the truth of Jesus, and their lampstand is shining bright. It's the basic idea that that Jesus is communicating here. The Ephesians are an enduring and discerning kind of people. The elders of the church uh, had apparently done a a good job of doing exactly what Paul prayed for uh, for the Ephesians back in Acts 28-31. Well, that prayer is apparently still ringing loud and clear in the church's ears. They proved a, a moral, orthodox, and hard-working people. They knew the truth and they defended it. And so Jesus commends them for marking out false teachers, being zealous for the truth, and not being led astray by the idolatry that ran rampant in Ephesus, which, by the way, was no easy task. It was no small order. Ephesus was the epicenter of idolatry, immorality, and false teaching. The city was dominated by the cult of the goddess Artemis, goddess of fertility. And and her temple had thousands of priests and priestesses with heavy involvement in prostitution. And much of the city's economic prosperity, prosperity... depended on trade associated with the temple of Artemis. Basically, if you lived in, in Ephesus and you were going to have any kind of financial stability, you had to deal and trade with the temple of Artemis. And the city also had two temples dedicated to Caesar, which meant that the city was a hotbed for worship of the Roman emperor. So you, you can bet That life for a Christian in Ephesus required discernment, theological precision, and care and endurance. They were under constant temptation to compromise the truths of the gospel and, and to synchronize the Christian faith with the city's paganism, to just mash the two together. And this is apparently what these fake, wannabe, false apostles in verse 4 and the Nicolaitans in verse 6 were trying to do. Now, very little is known about the Nicolaitans. The only other place that they're even referred to in the Bible is later on in Revelation 2 verse 15 where uh, where they're compared to Balaam, the, the false Old Testament prophet who lured the Israelites into immorality and idolatry. And the Nicolaitans apparently we're we're trying to use those same exact weapons of sex and idolatry to lure the Ephesian church away from Jesus. But instead of being conquered by their false teachings, Nicolaitan literally means one who conquers people. The Ephesian church stood their ground. They dug in their heels. They saw through the ruse, and Jesus commended them for it. Even when it cost them socially and economically, they proved willing to endure for the truth of Christ. Brothers and sisters, it it shouldn't come as any shock to us that our culture is making it increasingly more difficult for us to hold fast to the truths of God's word. Some of you have felt that pressure this week in the classroom or in the office. Like the church in Ephesus, we are under immense pressures to conform to the patterns and the teachings of this world. That tidal wave of cultural pressure, it's not just coming for us. It is already slamming into us right now. And it's going to cost us enormously to stand our ground. We're going to lose our friends. We're going to lose family members, social status, money, jobs, our comforts, our livelihoods, if we keep standing with Jesus. Our culture, they used to just think that we were weird for believing what the Bible says about humanity and marriage and, or the exclusivity of Jesus or sin. But now they, now they consider us dangerous for affirming these truths. We're a threat. You know, and like the Ephesians we are, we are going to have to work and toil and labor to build up our discernment and endurance muscles. Because if we don't, we are done for. We will not make it. We'll crumble. We'll cave as Christians and as a church. So what are some exercises that we need to start doing? What are are some ways that we can strengthen those those muscles? One, stay humble. Stay humble. Our minds are are limited, and we, we need God to renew them so that we know what is good, perfect, and acceptable. We are not naturally discerning people. I hate to burst that bubble for you. Our hearts and our minds are easily enticed by what is evil and false. So we need to seek and submit ourselves to the one who knows all things and gives wisdom freely and abundantly. Stay humble. Number two, value truth. Value truth. I'm talking about real, objective, unchanging truth as it's been revealed to us in the word and manifested in Christ. You know, the patient endurance, you see, I remember how many times that was repeated in those verses? The patient endurance of the, uh, the Ephesians in these verses, it reveals what they really value. They value fact over fake news. They're reading more of their Bibles, it appears, than they are their Twitter feeds. They're slow to get caught up in the latest conspiracy theory or theological controversy And they are much quicker to test those things against the standard of God's word. Value truth. Value truth in an age that doesn't value it at all. Number three, embrace goodness. Embrace goodness. The church in Ephesus spent their time thinking about honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent things. They were consumed with truth, righteousness, and beauty. They avoided evil and embraced moral goodness and whatever was worthy of praise. Jesus says in verse 6 that they hated what he hated and loved what he loved. Does that describe you? Fourth thing. Fourth little exercise we can do. Avoid hyperbole. Avoid hyperbole. We live in an age with a cacophony of voices. And often the loudest voice, the one that screams the loudest, is the only one that we hear. And it's tempting, it's so tempting to say that something is the most important issue of our day. But how do we even know how to evaluate such a claim? Too many Christians today have been too quick to take third-tier issues, issues that we can disagree on as Christians and still be Christians and still have fellowship with one another. And we've exaggerated these issues into matters of gospel fidelity. But brothers and sisters, showing a concern for racial injustice doesn't automatically make someone a Marxist or mean they're abandoning the gospel. And not every desire to loosen COVID restrictions means someone is failing to love their neighbor or bear one another's burdens. We must always be vigilant for the truth of the gospel. Yes, but overheated rhetoric like this can actually numb us to real spiritual danger and false teaching when it is staring us in the face. And it will poison our unity in Jesus. If we fail, if we fail to endure for Jesus, then the alternative will be to lose our witness to Jesus entirely. We will become just like the culture that surrounds us. We'll believe what they believe, we'll endorse what they endorse, and we will do as they do. And instead of measuring all things by the truth of God's word, we'll start modifying it. We'll start modifying it in order to make ourselves look and sound more appealing and attractive and tolerant. But the church in Ephesus, they didn't take that bait. They didn't take that bait. They stood their ground and they endured. Are you prepared to do that? Are we as a church prepared to do the hard work it will take to endure for Jesus? But Jesus also had some hard words. For the Ephesians. He had some hard words for the Ephesians and that takes us to our next point. Point number 2, love in Christ. Love in Christ. You know, in, in verses 4 and 5, the tone of the letter, it shifts with a single word, a single conjunction, but I have this against you. Just imagine how verse 4 Must have totally sucked all the air out of the room. Hearing Jesus say verses two to three about you, the Ephesians must have been feeling pretty good, looking around, fist bumping bumping each other in their pews. And then verses four and five come at you like a roundhouse kick to the face. But these aren't the words of these aren't the words of some spurned vindictive lover. They're the the words of a husband committed to his discerning yet loveless bride. They're sobering words, no doubt, absolutely, but they are also loving words. For Jesus calls the church to repent and to return to her first love. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says that they've abandoned their first love? Well, again, there have been several different guesses. Some have said that, that they've lost their love for each other, that they've been become consumed with self-interest and selfish ambition, that they're backbiting and no longer patiently bearing up with one another in love. And this, this makes sense, given all the emphasis that Paul puts on love and unity in his letter to the Ephesians. Others have said that, that Jesus is getting at a kind of heartfelt feeling of affection and passion. Where the Ephesians used to be stirred up with emotion for Christ, now their love has grown cold and clinical. They're, they're all head and no heart. So which is it? Well, I, I think it's a bit of both. Given what Jesus just said about their commitment to sound teaching, it makes sense that That a kind of sad result of that would be a a kind of lovelessness for the subject of their study, for God himself. You know, orthodoxy is always meant to lead to doxology. But sadly, some of the most learned people about God can be the most loveless for him. This is what happened to the Pharisees in Jesus' day. But... I also think that Jesus is addressing a kind of love that the Ephesians once had for one another, but that they now lack. It's the kind of love that Molly read for us about in 1 John 4. If you look back at Paul's letter to the Ephesians and his prayer for them in in Acts 20, it's, it's really striking how much he focuses on the horizontal love that we're to have with one another as a result of the vertical love that we have with God through the work of Christ. You know, we don't have time to, to go through the whole book of Ephesians, but I encourage you to just spend some time this week flipping through it and just note all the ways in which the Ephesians were commanded to manifest their love of Christ through the way they loved one another. I think Jesus is picking at that here. So though the Ephesians were, were excelling and and they were enduring for Christ. They had grown cold toward the one who had united them to God and, and to one another in the context of the church. Their doctrine game was really strong, but their love game was weak. They were like a bodybuilder builder who had only worked out their arms, kept skipping leg day, barrel-chested, chiseled biceps, but they had skinny little chicken legs. Morgan Montgomery, that that not saying you have chicken legs, Morgan, but you are a bodybuilder that's working for you. (laughs) They were a disproportionate people. That's the point. They were zealous for doctrinal purity, but but not for God or for others. You know, could the same be said of us? I wonder does that describe us? And our commitment to the truth, is there something deficient about our love? As our understanding of God grows, is our heart for him and for his people growing too? Are we watching our life, our love, and our doctrine closely, just as Paul admonished Timothy, the one who would one day serve as the pastor of the church in Ephesus? You know, loving Loving the right things about God, it is not the same thing as actually loving God. We can have all the right theology about God, but if it does not produce a greater affection for Jesus and his people, then Jesus says that we are nothing. He says we're nothing. Now there's another dimension to how the Ephesians have abandoned their first love. You're getting getting a sense of revelation here. Another level, another dimension. Because what Jesus, I think what Jesus is most concerned about here is how their lack of love is not being borne out in witness to him. In growing cold for, for Jesus and for one another, the Ephesians have grown cold in their love for the lost. They're defaulting on their very function as a church. Two clues in the letter that point to this being the case. Two clues. Remember how Jesus described himself back in verse 1. I am the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, Ephesus needed to be reminded about what their very purpose was from the beginning. To be a light for the nations. Second clue, look in verse five, look in verse five at what jesus says he 'll do to the to the church in Ephesus if they don 't repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent it 's a fitting punishment for a church that's abandoned their first love, isn't it? If they don't repent, Jesus is going to revoke their status as an embassy of his heavenly kingdom. They're going to lose the light all because they've lost their love for the very reason he had chartered and commissioned them to be his embassy in the first place. The whole reason Jesus had set his love on Ephesus was so that they would turn in love to him, to one another. And then that love would propel them out in love for the lost. But that's not what is happening in Ephesus anymore. Oh, brothers and sisters, members of UBC, we need to heed and hear these words. We exist as a local church to bear testimony to our King. This is the reason he's made us to love him and one another. And you can be sure, you can be absolutely certain that right now, right now, sitting on his throne, our king, our king, the one who holds his seven stars in his right hand and who's walking among the golden lampstands, this king has a very strong opinion about the job that we are doing. He knows, he knows much better than we do how well or how, poor, how poorly we are representing him in the world. That is not hidden from him. It is exposed before him right now. Do you know why God has made us his people? Why University Baptist Church exists why do you think God has redeemed and gathered all 661 of us into one body like this? Is it so we can, we can all make friends, have potlucks, vote on stuff, sing some songs each week, listen to me ramble on about this book for 45 minutes? Do you think it's primarily a, a place that exists to help you, to serve your needs, or as a kind of refuge that will keep You safe from the dangers of the world? Friends, this this is not why Jesus has made us his people. It's not why he's chartered us to be his church. No, 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 no. The king has set his emblem on you. And on me, he set his emblem on us so that we can go and tell all peoples from every tribe, nation, and tongue to repent and believe in the king and the one who has come to save them from their sins. And so the application for us is extraordinarily simple. Who can you start loving today, tomorrow, this week by bearing witness to Jesus? Who can you go and tell about the king? You don't need the elders to organize some program for you to go and do this. You're members of the church. You're members of UBC. This is why Jesus has called you. So just go do it. Take take the initiative upon yourself. It's the mission King Jesus has given you. It's the mission he's given us. So just go tell people about Jesus. You want to know what really encourages me as, your, as one of your pastors? What really gets me excited? It's when I hear about members of this church sharing Jesus with those who don't know him. You want to encourage me? Just come tell me about evangelistic opportunities you've got. Whether that's with international students at the U of A or An evangelistic Bible study happening in the workplace or a gospel conversation you just had with your neighbor. I love hearing about the creative ways that you are working to to build relationships with people who do not know Jesus. But the question that we have got to be asking ourselves, that every single one of us as a member of this church must be asking... Is how can we do it better? How how can we do it more? Because that is the question that King Jesus is asking of us right now. So the Ephesians' love had grown cold. And in verse five, Jesus is going to tell them how to crank back up the heat. What are they to do? Three things, he says in verse 5. Three things. Remember from where you've fallen, repent of your sin, and return to the good works you used to do. Remember, repent, and return. That's how this loveless bride learns to love again. I think what Jesus is doing here in this verse is basically just calling the Ephesians back to the gospel. He's just calling them back to the gospel to remember all that God had accomplished for us in Christ and then to let that fuel and motivate their affections and their devotion for Christ for one another and for the world. That's how God's people, that's how Christ's people keep themselves in the love of God. It's how we stay true and dedicated to the mission he's given us. The gospel itself, the gospel is both the message and the means by, by which we accomplish our mission as a church. It's how we get our job done. It's through the gospel. But, you know, these, these aren't the only action steps that, that Christ gives to his people. All people need to obey this gospel. All, all people need need to obey his words here in verse 5. If you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, then listen to Jesus. He's calling you to repent and to follow him. He's calling you to believe the gospel. For, For Jesus just doesn't speak these words as the supreme head of the church. He's speaking these words as the supreme head of the universe. He not only holds seven stars in his right hand, He holds galaxies. And that makes him your creator and your maker. And the bad news is, is that you and I have sinned and rebelled against him. And now we deserve his wrath and his judgment. But, oh, that blessed conjunction... But in love and mercy, those same hands that hold the seven stars and the galaxies would be the same hands that were pierced upon a cross in order to pay the wages of our sin. And now with those same wounded hands, he's calling you to repent of your sin, your lovelessness of him, and to come to him in faith. So listen to him. Listen to him. Come to the king in faith and repentance and be saved. Because you don't, you don't want to find yourself standing against this king when he comes. Because at the end of the book of Revelation, those who are standing against this king and his people will be conquered by this king and his people. So come, come to him in faith and repent. Because those who follow him, those who follow Jesus, they get, they get something incredible. He makes an incredible promise to them. Which leads us to our last point in the final verse. We will feast with Christ. This is a much shorter, shorter point. We will feast with Christ. You know, each of Christ's letters to the seven churches, it concludes with a promise to the one who, who overcomes the, the challenge that the church is facing. And each promise involves an image that, that's going to get picked back up later in the book until all the promises are are fully and finally realized by Christ's people at the end. And so to the Ephesians, Jesus promises... In verse 7, access to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Which means that, that if the Ephesians will continue to bear witness to him in both truth and love, then they will enjoy the fruits of forgiveness and the restoration of all humanity from its original fallen state. They'll enjoy the very presence of God where, where they'll gather around the table of the king and feast with him forever. Back in Genesis, you'll remember that the tree of of life was the scene of cosmic treason. There, Satan, he he had led Adam and Eve to a buffet that would kill them. But here in in verse 7, Jesus is leading his people to one that will restore their lives. See, Satan, he tempts us to take, eat, and die to take, eat, and die, but not Jesus. Jesus grants us the right to take, eat, and live. Outside of Christ, the the gates to his garden are locked, and access back to that tree of life is eternally denied to us. But in Christ, those gates swing open wide, and we're free to enjoy him eternally, forever. And such a promise, it should give us all the motivation we need to endure in this world and stay faithful to our first love. Give us all that motivation. Why pay the high high cost we're going to have to pay for following Jesus in this world? Why lose friends, family members, our jobs, reputations, maybe even our lives for the sake of the truth? Why patiently endure all of this? just like the Ephesians did. Why labor in love for Christ, for one another and for the lost? Why be inconvenienced by each other? Why bear up patiently with each other's faults and differences? Why share the gospel with the lost? Why risk being mocked, laughed at, and ignored for loving Jesus and telling others about him? Why suffer through all the awkwardness and the hostility of that? Why? 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 Because the king is worthy. Because the king is worthy. And the reward he promises us is worth it. That's why. At the end of it all, if we endure, we get life. We get life. But how? How on earth are we supposed to overcome all this? The only way, the only way is in Christ. For only Jesus supplies us with what we need to conquer. Only Jesus is strong and kind enough to get us safely to those golden shores we're all yearning for. Remember his opening words in verse 2. He knows. He knows exactly what we need to endure. That's how particular his care and love for the church is. Ephesus had lost their witness in the world. And so Jesus revealed himself as the one who walks among the golden lampstands to remind them of their purpose, of their need. The church had a particular need that only Jesus could meet, which means it's not just that Jesus motivates our endurance, but he actually enables it. He enables our endurance. We can expect to conquer in him, Because he's sufficient in every way for the needs of his people. And he has proved this through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the only one who endures in truth and love for the lost, fully, completely, Perfectly, unequivocally. He never ever wavers in that work. He's always championing what is good and true. He's always loving others. He's always radiating with the light of the sun and shining with the glory of the Father. And he now bears witness to the world as the resurrected king. If we remain in him, you can bet we're going to conquer. So, brothers and sisters, Keep your eyes fixed on the king, the one who holds the seven stars, the church, the one who's holding UBC in his hand right now. Keep your eyes on him. He's with us, empowering, motivating, speaking, equipping, strengthening, walking among us. In him, we will be a light for the nations. In Him we will endure. In Him we will love. And in Him we will feast forever. Let's pray.